Even if you're not a parent, this conversation may interest you because it's about punishment. But to put it in context for those of you who've been children before, i.e. everybody, or who are now parents, we hear now about parenting techniques like grounding or spanking. Anybody experience those? Which focus on the bad behavior of children and punishing them for it. And on the other hand, we have sort of newer, but kind of been around for a while, parenting platforms like Love and Logic that emphasize ways for adults to discipline their children without losing their love and respect, sort of this more, quote, natural consequence type of a system. So now taking this a little bit bigger, if you've heard terms like the school to prison pipeline or issues relating to discipline at school, and in particular, how those issues disproportionately affect children of color, maybe it's time to shift the lens a little. Those terms and concepts tend to focus on the actions of the kids. But what if we consider the whole system of punishment that we have in the United States, including how punishment happens at school, and think about how we can change how we view the role of punishment? in a way that protects all children. So after this episode, we'd love for you to ask yourselves a few questions. How does school punishment tie into the system of mass incarceration? How does punishment at home tie into our punishment mindset as a society? What changes can we make to shift our country's mentality with regard to abolition, which we know is a scary word, but not such a scary way of living, if we're honest. Going back to love and logic, if that's the system in that we have in mind, what if we actually lived it outside of our homes and applied it also to Black families? To address these, we bring you a conversation with Hari Ziad, the author of Black Boy Out of Time, who adds their own unique lens to this conversation. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Hari, we're super psyched to have you here. Could you introduce yourself for the audience, please? Yes, I'm Hari Ziad. I am the author of Black Boy Out of Time, a new memoir coming out next week, and also the editor-in-chief of a publication called Race Bader. I'm also a screenwriter. I live in New York currently in Brooklyn, and I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Brooklyn. I lived there for a little while when I was young and cool. That's awesome that you're there. Thank you for being here with us because obviously you like writing. I know that, you know, I have no idea how comfortable, you know, the whole speaking about the stuff you write is, but I really, I like Race Bader and I've seen some of the interesting articles you've written there and I appreciate your work. And I know Misasha, you know, got a copy of the book and all of this. So I'm excited to talk to you about some of the stuff that we discuss on the show. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote Black Boy Out of Time? I wrote it for a couple of reasons, but I think the main one was just... And I didn't really discover this until I was like halfway through the process was to heal from a lot of things that I hadn't really healed from. I mean, it's a very personal story. Um, central to the story is my relationship to my mother and how that was affected by my queerness. And so much of just writing through that, I'm like, oh, we have a lot of things to figure out. And then especially partway through writing the book, um, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so that kind of just like spurred this like urgency to do some of that healing work. So I think ultimately what I was trying to do with the book was to heal from a lot of the traumas that I experienced as a Black queer person, but also to lay the groundwork for other Black queer people to figure out how to start doing their own healing. 
I think that's so powerful. And thank you. I know that the book is so personal and we're so excited, like Sarah was saying, to have you here today to talk about that. And, you know, I'm a mother of Black sons and which I'm sure you can tell exactly from looking at me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But so I, you know, this next question that I want to ask is something that I think about a lot, right? And you know, what are those pressures, in your opinion, that are put on Black children when they're young? And I want to layer on the, as you were talking about, you know, the queerness and that in a second, but those expectations, the stereotypes from inside the home and from outside the home, can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many different things that I experienced that um, I don't always like to universalize my experience, but I do think that there are some like central things that like all black children experience. And in the book, I term the specific oppression that black children face misafropedia, because I do think that the ways that we go through our childhood um, is very different from how other people maneuver through that. And one of the main things I think, uh, obviously, there's this pressure to um, conform to gender in a very specific way. And I think for Black children in particular, there's this added layer of this like carceral system that's always there to enforce this. And if you don't exhibit your gender in this very particular way, you're, there's going to be specific consequences and that is connected to the school to prison pipeline, et cetera. And so I think that starts to happen in in your home before you start going out. Often we have this idea that it's pretty widespread. It's something that I appreciate my parents for challenging, but there's the idea of the talk that Black children experience that, you know, you're going to be perceived as a threat when you go out into the world. And so this is how you must conform yourself. And I think that's really connected to gender presentation, particularly for someone who grew up being gendered as a boy. It's about how to perform that in a way that is acceptable. But it's also you're because there's this whole anti-queerness thing, you're also trying to perform it in a way that's not too feminine, which I think is there's like this weird tension that is really hard for children to navigate. But I think another pressure that Black children experience, um, which I write about in the book, is this pressure to separate themselves from other Black children. And that I think is really prevalent in the schooling system. Once you start to see groups of Black children congregating, the general perception of gangs and things start to to come up. And that I think is something that is systematic and purposefully done to separate children from each other. You can also find that in the ways that we separate out the gifted Black children from the quote-unquote regular Black children in schooling systems. I think they all operate to kind of force a wedge between the community in ways that make them easier targets for the carceral violence that I was speaking on earlier. So yeah, I think all of those are kind of connected forces that ultimately are about making sure that Black children don't have the same kind of access to this idea of innocence. And I don't really like using that term for a lot of reasons that we can get into later, but as a shorthand of just like Black children aren't afforded the opportunity to just enter a space and be given the benefit of the doubt are always being pressured to conform in a certain way. And because of the tensions that I mentioned earlier, um, it's almost impossible a lot of times for them to fit to meet those standards. And so they're always doing that performance wrong. And then that wrong performance is punished by the carceral system in ways that I think we're all familiar with. 
you know, that sucks. My kids present as white. I married a white Canadian guy. We've known each other for decades. And when Misasha and I talk about raising kids, that's sort of what led us to have these conversations in the first place. But what you said about innocence, you know, as a mom, I'm like, I'm not trying to be like, that sucks. Wow, I'm watching it suck. But like, that really sucks because I see it so much how Black, especially as you said, in the gendered way, like Black boys are seen as threats and are seen as older than they are so much younger at an age where they still are children. And like, kids are kids. And I do see it a lot where people don't give kids the benefit of the doubt because of how they show up, how they look from the white community, especially. Yeah, and it's not just, I mean, I think there is a specific way that Black boys experience this, but I mean, we also see that with Black girls too, particularly in relation to how white girls are treated. They're the distinction or the rates who's being suspended and who's being arrested as children are similar, although they're less than that for boys. But I think it's the same process of adultification is happening just in a different way. I definitely don't want to say that only happens to boys, but I can speak to that experience as someone who was gendered as a boy growing up. But I think it's part of just how Blackness is adultified. And like I was saying earlier, is put in these positions where they can't really fit into a category uh, that other people recognize with coherence. And so they're always going to be punished in that way. Totally. I mean, I live in Denver and these child arrests at school, the nine-year-olds who are put in handcuffs because they're like, we couldn't get the child under control. And you're like, really? Like, it's a nine-year-old child. Like, What are you talking about? You couldn't get them under control. Would you ever do that if their body looked different? Right, right. And we don't know the, I mean, we can guess, we can surmise, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we know enough. (laughs) (laughs) It's the rates, but yeah, it's ridiculous. And just how regularly that happens. um, I think now we're starting to see these videos go viral, but this has been happening forever. I mean, it's happened to my mother and her mother and her mother's mother. And so there's this legacy that I think what I'm hoping the book does, and I'm glad to see a lot of other conversations around Black childhood do, is to really just start interrogating that. And to, I think more than changing the way we as adults talk about that, changing how children internalize that, um, which I think is the something that when we do have these conversations, even if they're wonderful and productive, don't always take into account the internalization that's happening for children. And like I said earlier um, about healing, like so much of that we're still dealing with 20, 30 years later. And so the importance of it, it's really critical to start dealing with how children start to see themselves, Black children, as something that is criminal. Before that first time that they're arrested, even if that's as early as nine years old as, as we've seen it has been. On that note, just to quick dive into how it is perceived. Do you have suggestions or thoughts having grown up with this pressure and identifying this pressure yourself? What are the different ways that we can support the psyche of a young Black child who's feeling all these messages and pressure and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is just to know how it is happening. Um, Obviously, you can't do anything about it unless you are aware that it's a problem and the extent of the problem. And so really, I think with my introduction of the term as Afropedias, I'm trying to give us more tools to be able to just name this process that's happening. But I think as like parents and as people who have Black children in their lives, I'm not a parent, but I have lots of nieces and nephews, is to just always be challenging that. Um, I always say that like one of my biggest fears 
before becoming a parent, which is something I do want to do, is that I'll always be fighting my children's teachers because I know how much damage that's going to cause my children. And I know how systematic that is and because I've experienced it. And I'm just going to always be alert to that process. And I think that's necessary, not necessarily to like go and fight teachers, but I think it's necessary to be alert and to be ready to challenge when that comes up to not just allow the different messages to propagate in classrooms, to not just let things pass by, and to show your children that it's okay to challenge and push back on these messages. And because if you're not going to do it, they're going to learn that, oh, I can't stand up for myself when this is happening to me. And so I think that's the most important thing is to show them that it is okay to start challenging those things to them and to not feel like, I think a lot of times that comes up against this idea of like civility and the ways that we're supposed to handle issues. And I think that's really detrimental to its respectability politics. It's really detrimental to Black children because what they learn from this is that they can't stand up for themselves or if they do, there's something wrong with them. And so I think challenging that early on is really crucial. You know, when you talk about that, because I like to get in people's faces about my kids all the time. So I fully understand and totally support that. And when you're talking about that, I hear accountability, right? Like I hear you talking about holding people accountable, really, for questions around identity or race or, you know, larger questions as well. And besides, you know, getting in teachers' faces, how do we, in your opinion, hold each other accountable when it comes to these larger questions? And is that different, you know, inside a family versus like outside in the community? That's a great question. I mean, because yes, it goes way beyond just getting in front of teachers, getting in teachers' faces. I think it's also apologizing to your own children. I grew up in a household that's, I mean, it's documented in the book where there's a lot of harms that were happening. And so much of my childhood, and my parents did great on a lot of other respects, but so much of it was that as a child, like you can only say certain things. Um, a child's place is not to push back because at the end of the day, what an adult says is, especially if they're your parents, like that is law. And I think challenging that being able to give agency to children to question and push back within the dynamics of a family and within a parent-child dynamic is really important. Not like in a disrespectful way, but it's okay for children to ask questions and to say they don't feel comfortable. And particularly like if we're talking about, I love the fact that in these consent conversations that we're having right now, people are very adamant about the fact that like, be aware when your child doesn't want to give a hug to someone, even if that person is in the family. And so I think starting there, like with the agency that a child knows, even if they're not able to articulate, knows that certain things are good for them and their body and being able to um, respect that is really, really important. And I think that just, we can expand on that within the larger community, but it starts there and the way that you're able to give your agency to children within your family. I, was staying with my sister for last summer and she has a young son and she does a really great job of raising him to like be very, very vocal. And he's like super 
precocious in an adorable way. He's like 10 years old. And it was really frustrating because he would like hop into a lot of the conversations that we were having that were like very clearly adult conversations. And I realized that such a, a lot of my frustration was just that I wasn't used to giving children space to be part of conversations in that way. I mean, there's still obviously cases where we did need to set boundaries, but I had to think about why some of those boundaries felt like so automatic and like I didn't wasn't even thinking through the purpose. Um, maybe it is good for him to know what's going on with, you know, finances. I'm just using an example because then he can learn how, about how finances work or blah, blah, blah. And maybe it's not. But I think if we don't just automatically assume that some conversations children just carte blanche should not be a part of, then we can start to respect their agency on a, a different level. And I think that's part of why my I respect my sister's parenting so much is because she did give him that space. I still think maybe a little less space sometimes, but like I said, a lot of that is just because we weren't given the same amount of space to have our own voices in conversations with adults. Totally. It's funny you said that about money because we were just talking about like, how do you give kids an appreciation for money if you don't talk to them about money and what is real about the expenses that we all have in the world too? So, but I like that idea of not making assumptions as a blanket statement, you know, this is what must be done to sort of constantly interrogate our assumptions and the generalizations and the rules that we make. And I think that's where I want to ask you next, like, can you talk to us a little bit about how your upbringing may or may not have been typical and also why we need to get rid of that way of thinking of like being typical or grouping people and why we want to look more at, you know, individual cases and stories. Yeah. I mean, I feel two types of ways, but I think the way we think about typical or like a standard life and the pressures we put around people who might not fit into that is as harmful but I don't know if necessarily the idea of typicality is harmful in and of itself. But to your question, I grew up as a one of 19 children in a Hare Krishna and Muslim family. My parents both are Black, but they converted um, at very young ages. My mother converted to Hinduism, a branch of Hinduism, called Vaishnavism. Most people know it as the Hare Krishnas. And when she was about 20, so she raised us all in that religion. And my father, he was Muslim, but he let my mother pretty much raise us in that way. Part of being raised in this family was my mother homeschooled us until we were in high school. And so it was very different from a lot of the experiences of my peers in the neighborhood. And I was very aware of that for my whole life. But I think as a child, it didn't really start to hit me until I started going to high school and started to fashion what my identity might become as a, a young adult. I mean, it was very much rooted in these ideas of like what is typical and what's not. Um, I pushed back, I think, against a lot of my upbringing for a variety of reasons. I think I was hurt by a lot of the ways that I had to constrict myself in my queerness. And I connected that a lot to my background. But a big part of it was just that I was like, I want to be like other people. And in a way that I didn't really as a child. And I think to your point about the harm of the stories that we tell about what's typical, what I did is I lost a lot of what was really a 
beautiful about how I was raised. And so it's true that there might be some things that I would have still push away from today. Um, I was also pushing away from a lot of the love and the care that my parents and intentionality, like my mother homeschooled 10 of her kids forever, basically. She didn't stop raising children until a couple of years before she passed away because she just kept banging us out and homeschooling us. And that was like a really beautiful thing that she did. And in the face of so many pressures and a society that said that that wasn't standard and that wasn't okay. And so I think it's really important to be able to recognize even if I think there are certain things it's okay to share with your community and to want to share with your community. And there's a way to do that without demonizing things that are not shared with you. And I think that's also important to how we talk about intercultural conversations and whether or not certain people can say certain words. It's okay to have a community that has a specific type of relationship with each other and there can still be a shared love with other people who don't share those specific aspects of that community. And so that's something that I had to learn growing up and I've gained a much greater appreciation for my upbringing because I've been able to recognize, I think, the care that my mother put into a lot of what I just thought was weird growing up. I love that. I mean, I like that you are already able to appreciate it because I think, I mean, even in my case, like sometimes it takes decades to really look back and appreciate our own unique situations and the hurts that were caused us by people who did have good intention, like our parents, our mothers, and that sort of thing. So I think that's really cool that you've already been able to like reflect and internalize that appreciation. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, in terms of gender identity and what is that extra layer of pressure then that is put on a black body, you know, especially when I think you said you are presented as a male, right? And in the black community, there's so many different, I mean, in any community, there's so many different layers to identity. What is the additional challenges you faced or what happens in terms of that pressure that we talked about earlier on Black children when you also identify in not that typical way that is expected? Yeah. So like I said, there are so many different things about like my upbringing that were really amazing. And that, and so many of those I'm able to apply to how I think about my gender now, like the way that my mother was just able to like create this new lane for her to experience the world as a Hindu woman in the 70s and 80s and early on in her conversion um, was really like the foundation for how I'm able to think about my queerness now. But she wasn't really able to incorporate that in how she viewed gender either. And I think that's part of like a larger social construct that I think you mentioned is not just about how Black people experience the world. I think we all have these gender constructs and we all struggle against them. But the way that it shows up within the Black community in particular, I think the stakes are just a lot higher. I think it, it means a lot more, or I can speak for my family in particular, it meant a lot more for my mother to be able to say, like, you're a young man, because then she could possibly have a little bit more control over what the narrative of my life would be, because she knows what a young man can do. And so obviously that's very constricting. And I wasn't a young man and my life wasn't going to go down that road. But in order to give some sort of coherence to this world where her child is under constant threat, 
when she's already doing all of this stuff to try and protect them as much as she can, homeschooling them and like keep trying to do, keep us safe in all these other ways. One of the ways that I think parents put a lot of undue pressure onto their black children is by uh, trying to make them follow specific gendered scripts. And that's what I experienced. I was supposed to follow this very specific gendered script and do it in a way that got increasingly more difficult as I got older and started to understand my sexuality and gender a little bit more. And so much of that was tied to, as someone who was assigned male, these ideas of a disconnect from emotion. And I think ultimately a type of violent rejection of women and femininity that was modeled by some of the men in my family. And as someone who felt a lot of femininity in myself, that meant a lot of violent rejections of the parts of me that were feminine. And so it was just a lot of suppression and beating yourself up and feeling like you're not good enough, being told that you're not good enough. And I think that's something that you experience whether you're queer or straight or cisgender or not, because these are very constricted ideals of what a man or a woman should be that no one is going to 100% follow. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of the things that I um, experienced with my family and a lot of the traumas that I'm healing from are related to those things that I felt like I could never be enough for them as a queer person and internalized so much of that in a way that I still to this day struggle with not feeling like I'm enough, even if it's not directly connected to how I see my gender now. It's connected to this idea that I have to be enough based on someone else's standard. Do you see the sign that's right here? I am enough. Uh, yes. It's one of my favorite. And we just listened to a webinar that had Sonia Renee Taylor's radical, like the body is not an apology. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love this idea of, you know, when we feel that pressure, because like you said, everyone feels that expectation because there are so many systems that are out there of expectation. And, you know, sometimes I look at these and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have these face wrinkles. And she was just like, oh, well, identify that ism. And I'm like, oh, that's ageism. Like, I don't need to beat myself up for looking this way because I am the age that I am and I'm fine. And I wrote on a sticky note here, I am inherently enough. And it's like, I think we all do need to challenge the self-flagellation factor and do these things to remind ourselves that we are enough. And sometimes when those systems that are in place are even stronger, like gender, right? Like that is a very strong ism, a racism, a very strong ism. Like you have to, like, there's so much more work, the stress that you bear and work that it has to take place to undo the stress that you have to wear from that. Right, right. And I think for Black people and gender in particular, you're never going to be able to perform it in the even close to the ideal because these ideals were not based on the ways that we experienced gender. Like they were specifically when slave people were brought here, their gender wasn't even listed on all of the records because that wasn't important. And so realizing just how far that goes and how far away from that you'll ever be able to get and much will just be running in circles trying to chase that is really crucial in particular, I think, for Black folks. You know, along those lines, can we talk, you mentioned it before, the carceral system. Let's talk about like the lasting impact that the system of mass incarceration has had on you. You know, we spoke with someone once who had moved into Compton in elementary school and said that in his new elementary school, the kids talked about when they went to prison, not like 
if they grew up and went to prison. It was an assumption that they were going to go. And obviously, you know, we are more familiar with this concept of the physical prison system physically being entrapped, you know, but there's also the psychological construct of imprisonment. And, you know, you mentioned some of this just now, these expectations and having to like free from the burden of these labels and expectations. But can we talk about, you know, you really focus a lot on the carceral system and I'd love to sort of dive in there a little bit more. Yeah. So one of the things that I hope that the book does is exactly what you're touching on is show how the connection between the carceral state and physical prisons and actual like police officers, which as an abolitionist, I am here to uh, ultimately live in a world without those things. But those are just tied to ideas that I think are at the root of all of what abolition is really trying to unearth. And those are ideas based on punishment and the fact that you can punish things into doing what you want them to do. And we all incorporate that. Back to our earlier conversation about raising children in this world, I think so much of child rearing is rooted in ideas of punishment. And that is why children don't have a lot of the agency that I think is that I was pointing out earlier could be really helpful for moving that conversation forward. But it's also in how we interact with our neighbors who do something wrong and how we interact with our partner Are you trying to punish them and get back at them in a way that's reflective of the carceral system? How you interact with yourself um, when you make a mistake, are you punishing yourself and internalizing this guilt and shame in a way that feels very much like the police and prison system? And I think so much of the carceral system is rooted in that. And we just externalize that into police and prisons, but it starts with how we interact with ourselves and with our families and with our communities. And that is, I think, the critical element of abolition that will get people from the point where they're like, this is not possible to live in a world without that, to, oh, I can see how I can start enacting abolition in my own life, because this is how punishment shows up in the ways that I interact with the people around me. Which, I mean, you're talking about parenting as one of that. And I was like, yep, yeah, I can totally see that both in my own upbringing. And then, you know, especially in now we're a year into, you know, our COVID isolation, separation, all those stresses and how those stresses are manifested and often in negative ways too. And sort of that reinforcing of the punishment as opposed to not. But I think that we're also at this place where we can, we are starting to imagine, you know, those different systems. And I was just reading an article about defund the police. And what does that really say? And all of the words about the terminology of defund versus what, you know, the larger meaning behind that. And I think I love when you're talking about abolition, because I think that is such an amazing goal to get to. And you were talking about, you know, rethinking how we use punishment in our lives and as one of those steps to, you know, getting to abolition. How else, when you're, you know, envisioning abolition and, you know, the destruction of our carceral system, what are those other steps that you see us taking? Yeah, I mean, I think they're all connected to that idea of punishment. But I think one of the things that's going to be really critical is we have to get to a place where like we know our neighbors. And I mean, it's different. I think when you don't live in a place like Brooklyn, it's very clear like how disconnected you are when you're like stacked on top of a million other people and no one really knows each other. But you can't really 
rely on other systems if they're they're not in place like when something a crisis is happening if you don't know anyone in your community that can respond to that then of course you're going to go to the police and so i think it's really important to get involved with your communities to start to know your neighbors to do things like at the beginning of the pandemic i made a concerted effort to just like show up in my own building and be like if you need help getting groceries if you can't go out like i can assist you with that um incorporating practices like that within your communities so that when there is a crisis there is someone else other than the police to show up is really really important and i think that is something you can do in your families as well have systems in place me and my partner before we got married we just like had this long meeting and set up all of our like emergency crisis responses and like a document here is where this is here is where my passport is this is where all of these different numbers are so that we're preparing to in the same way that we expect the state to be there for us if there's ever anything that happens we were already prepared for that are you preparing to one of the things that in new york especially like the women in my life i've made a concerted effort to help them get pepper spray and things like that if they need to not because i expect them to go out and like fight um, off everybody that uh, attacks them but to start having those conversations preemptively so that when the time comes we're already prepared and we already have somewhere to go and that can only happen when you you are really connected to the people in your communities and the people around you i appreciate that cuz so much of what i say you know even from the positive psych standpoint all the research that they do talks about our long term health and happiness is like the biggest predictor of that is the relationships that you have so what you're talking about is also psychologically very healthy for humans to all have and invest in anyway it makes sense you know i can also imagine on the other side so many people who are used to this idea of punishment as the reason you know we're such a culture of fear and so many people think that are motivated by fear to do the right thing and that they assume that other people that the only way to control other people is to make them fearful too and this idea of abolition would frighten them because they'd be like well then how do you know people are going to do the right thing and it sort of opens up this box cuz you realize that they don't trust other people that they do think the worst of other people it's it's sort of all their assumptions are pretty clear then if you believe that fear and punishment is the only way to get good behavior out of other human beings right right and that is such a double edged sword because once you accumulate enough power like what are you afraid of like donald trump is not afraid of anything and so all of the things that you would want in your society are going to be threatened as soon as someone who can accumulate enough power if we're only motivated in our society by fear if they don't fear anything but if we're motivated if Donald Trump and this is a weird example I don't know if this is even possible but if someone like that was able to have access to what it meant to actually be healthy and to move based on a desire for health then it wouldn't matter if they were afraid of a specific consequence because they would know that the benefit of just having a healthy community and healthy um life is beyond that and so i want people to be motivated by um a desire to be healthy instead of a desire to run away from scary things and sometimes those two things are in conflict sometimes the healthiest thing is a very scary thing to do but you're going to feel and live a much better life once you're beyond that and i think abolition is just the 
the biggest example of that. Like it's probably the most terrifying thing to live in a world where you don't have police or prisons to rely on if something goes wrong. But if that society was rooted in a culture of healing and health and we approach problems based on that standpoint, then what kind of world would that be? Like, why can't we focus on imagining that instead of imagining how everything could go wrong? Which I don't think there's anything wrong with being afraid, but that it takes over the possibilities of anything better um, and the possibilities of healing. That's where we come up against problems. And I think you just hit the nail on the head when it comes to why people should be more motivated to do it. It is healthier for every single one of us to be thinking like this, to slow down, to prepare for worst case scenarios and get our paperwork in order, to you know, to think forward, not out of fear, but just to be armed so that you're more confident that you not armed like physically, but like prepared, I guess is what I mean, you know, to, that you're going to be okay, that you have people that you won't be left alone, that you have these fundamental safety nets. It's good for all of us to be thinking in this way. So I appreciate that, you know, but then coming back to where we started, I think one of my overarching questions, given all of this and, and, you know, me, Sasha and other parents of black children, Probably. I mean, you and I have talked about it, Misasha, but like who can really protect black children in an anti-black world in the system that is currently built the way it is when we're trying, even if we're aspiring to move it, who can protect them? Yeah, I think that's the issue. It's that you can do all of these things. And I think my mother in particular was motivated out of a strong desire to protect me, even when she was doing harmful things. But ultimately you can get degrees, you can be as educated as you want, you can perform gender in the most perfect way that you can. But as long as these systems are still in place, there's always going to be a threat there to Black people and Black children. And so I think the goal should be, how do we reshape this world so that it's not fundamentally anti-Black? So every obstacle that a Black child comes up against doesn't have a whole arsenal that they have to overcome. And I think we do that by starting at this place of abolition. Like abolition is at the root of how the society is built. And so I do think on smaller levels, we can protect Black children within our households by being an abolitionist parent who acknowledges the agency of their child and gives them voice and doesn't punish them and is focused on their healing. But I think ultimately, and we need to live in a society where that is the case. And so just continuing to move forward with that and all aspects of your life is the closest thing that we'll get. And I believe that can happen in our lifetime. It's a huge goal, but you have to believe it in order to keep working towards it. And in the meantime, just doing that on the, the scale of your families and your household is a good place to start. So I agree with, you know, giving what you're saying about giving children agency and doing all these things. It sounds really meaningful and psychologically very healthy as well for the child. And I also know, having at least spoken to several families, that they feel like they still need to instill discipline. You listen to adults because when you go out to the real world, we haven't reached abolition yet. You will be facing police and they want their children to be prepared and know how to respond respectfully to the police and not talk back. And how do those things match up? Are they compatible, do you think? I mean, I think for sure it's compatible with you know, children being respectful. And I think you can teach that and still give them agency. I don't think an abolitionist household is one where children don't have any type of discipline. And I don't know if discipline would be the right word, but that they're respectful of the fact that there's someone else here who is leading this household. 
I don't think that having agency is the same thing as there not being any leaders. And I think we can expand upon that within our community. Uh, we can all still have agency and still have leaders within the community. Um, but in terms of like preparing children for the outside world, what does that mean exactly? I don't know if we've always answered that question before we start doing that. Is it preparing a child for the violence that they're going to experience out in the world? Is that the same thing as give, meeting out that same type of violence to them? Is there another way to prepare children for that? I think so. I think I didn't need to, and I think this is, goes back to our conversation around fear. You don't always need to feel the pain before you know that something is, you want to avoid that. And so I think just preparing children for that and reinforcing that it's wrong, and you can't really reinforce that it's wrong if you're going to do the same thing to them is how we prepare them for that world. So you can have the talk with your child and be like, this is how police see you. And then you can follow up and say, but this is completely wrong and it shouldn't be like this. And I'm not gonna reflect that type of behavior in my relationship with you because I wanna model a world where that's not the case. Everyone else is not going to do that. But within this household and within the communities that you and the family that you hopefully later create, you can do that. Um, and I think that's the way that you prepare people for the world without reinforcing the violence of the world. I think that kind of goes back to accountability too, in some ways, like, you know, still showing children that actions have consequences, right? Because I have a very smart mouth six-year-old who, you know, I'm trying to make sure is not going to say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time when I'm not there, you know, or his father's not there or some upstander's not there to step in, in our society that we have now. But at the same time, I want him to know that, you know, that we can be better than this, you know, with the fear and the punishment and all of that. So that's something for me to aspire to as well, I think, and taking into my own child rearing, but really setting that tone and that balance and having those conversations. Cause we do have those with the boys at home because yeah, they go out and they're not going to be given the benefit of the doubt. Right. So like, and we live in a very white community, so all the other white kids may get the benefit of the doubt. They won't. So, but to balance that also with fear and punishment, I think that's an important yeah, point. Yeah. Like just because you are going to get the benefit of the doubt, out there doesn't mean that you have to be punished for because you should like ultimately you should be able to like move up go out in the world and if someone is violating your rights you should be able to say no and so i think it's really really important to instill that into black children in particular that they the ideal world is one where when you're being violated you have the agency to push back against that um, we don't live that in that world right now, but that's you should always be mo aspiring towards that and in whatever relationships that you have control over. I wondered if I could ask something sort of because I love the theoretical conversations and I really appreciate this conversation because it's already like I can see how some of these things apply even totally not related to race, but this latest thing with like the lockdown drills that children experience at school if there's a shooter. Now there was the research last year, two years, I don't know, sometime in the last few years, it showed that it's not effective the way it is and it's freaking the kids out. And so I noticed that in our school district, they had a lockdown drill, but instead of having to actually hide and turn off lights and be silent and experience this fear and have people rattling the doors to scare them into submission, they just watched a video. 
And so I can see that if we're able to do that in school communities, we can absolutely start adopting the same mindset of teaching them about the things that are out there without having to actually traumatize them every time that we're going through it. But I wondered, and I don't want to trigger you or have you dig too much into stuff that you don't want to, but you know, you talk so much, you care so much about this idea of not traumatizing Black children. And it's apparent how much work you have done to undo the experiences you've gone through. Can you talk a little bit personally about how it felt going through it, what you went through, what you had to go through to work to become, you said you're on this process of undoing a lot of those traumas? Yeah, no, I don't think it'll get too personal. So much of that work was modeled actually by my mother. So my grandmother, in the book I write about this a lot, is she had bipolar disorder and for a long time she was unmedicated and she lived with us for a long time. And so there were a lot of just like really messed up things that happened when she would have these mental health crises. And I would watch how my mother would respond to that. And my mother was a target of a lot of these things. Like she would hit her and yell at her. And still my mother, even though my mother never identified as an abolitionist, um, I would watch how she would always be trying to move beyond and find another way to deal with her mother outside of just like calling the police who usually came and like threw my mother on the ground and like always something really terrible and she'd be like forcibly institutionalized for a while and never really helped. And so just watching that, even though a lot of the things that I'm healing from is directly because of my mother, but watching how she engaged with her mother really like laid a lot of that foundation for me and and about how I engaged with my mother as I became an adult. Because I think it was just really beautiful that she was modeling this abolitionist perspective without even knowing it. And I think that a lot of families do that because at the root of it all is this love. Like if you really love someone, you're going to try and find the best solution. You don't want to see them for their harm necessarily. And she really loved her. And so that is kind of, I've always been able to like tap into that. Obviously, as I got older, I started doing more therapy and therapy is a big part of the book as well. And that would always just come back up is the relationship my mother had with her grandmother. And that helped me to conceptualize a lot of my other relationships. I also did a lot of inner child work, which is also in the book. Um, If you do not know anything about inner child work, it's basically a cognitive behavioral practice where you're basically like externalizing a version of your child self and parenting them with in the ways that they might not have experienced So you're like actually talking to your childhood self. And so much of that is how I kind of like worked through a lot of my experiences and that I hadn't healed from from childhood. And that's very central to the book. But I think to as a something that I would advise to anyone, even if it's not necessarily inner child work, therapy is really critical. And we have all these conversations about therapy in the Black community. And I think so much of that is not necessarily rooted in this idea that therapy is bad or like there's a stigma around it, although there is, but part of it is rooted in the idea that the types of traumas and harms that Black people experience will not be properly accounted for in the therapeutic setting. And so that's something that we have to continue to push for and push for more Black therapists, more queer therapists. And so that's part of what I'm hoping to do with the book as well. I hope that answered your question. That's how I'm managing 
this. And then just writing to me is a therapeutic process. And that's why so much of the inner child work was in the book. I actually write half of the book to my younger self. And that was kind of just me incorporating the work that I was doing in therapy into the book. No, I appreciate what you said about therapy too. There's so many different thoughts that we've been able to talk about today. Are there any other even more tangible, specific tips, things to say, or questions that people should be asking themselves to think about what you're, you know, to internalize what you're talking about and changes that you want to see people embrace more specifically? Yeah. I mean, I would just reiterate this idea of like, how have I internalized punitivity in my life? I think it, to make that a daily practice of asking yourself that question, thinking through conflicts that, you know, on first glance might not feel very punitive at all, an argument with your partner or some conflict that you might have with your child. Just thinking through those things with that lens regularly, I think is a great practice to start developing this skill set that you can take out into the world and that will be readily available when you're interacting with the world at large. So yeah, I just would reiterate that and I hope that people can start to pinpoint how punitivity shows up in their lives and particularly in their relationship to children more often after reading the book because there are a lot more specific examples in there of how it showed up in my life. But yeah, that is the core of my argument is that there are ways to start this on a very interpersonal level, on a very everyday, day-to-day basis. And we can start doing that today. I love that because we're all about the practical and the little things often. And so that's great. Where can people buy the book? Where can they find you? Because we're sure that after hearing this, there's going to be so much interest. Yeah, you can buy the book online anywhere you buy books. It is currently, I don't know when this will be aired, but currently it's part of the Amazon First Reads program. So if you buy it through Amazon, you can get it within this month prior to publication. But otherwise, you can buy it anywhere online, Barnes & Noble. There's a list of stores on Goodreads if you go to Black Boy Out of Time there. And you can find me at my website at hariziad.com and on socials. Anywhere, I'm Hari Ziad as well. And yeah, I hope to continue having conversations. I'm always engaging with community on social media and and people can submit questions on my website as well. I appreciate that. I'm already thinking, you know, as we were talking about the kids side, I'm already like, I totally probably position stuff like candy access as punishment or like even those things, but, and it seems impractical, it seems unrelated, but the way that you position this is if we practice dismantling the system of punishment in our homes, we're contributing to the greater good outside of it. And it is doing productive stuff for society at large by rethinking those little things that we do in our homes. So I really appreciate all that you've shared with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 